0: Welcome, this talk was recorded at Insight LA in Long Beach. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit us at InsightLA.org.
1: So welcome everybody to Insight LA Long Beach Sunday Sit. Um, Today I'm very happy to announce... uh, A dear friend and teacher of mine, Beth Sternlib, is with us here, and so it's very precious to have a teacher like Beth. You know, there's no uh, substitute for experience, and Beth's been practicing the Dharma since her early twenties. For twelve years, she did the uh, the month and a half retreat, silent retreat at IMS. Quite amazing, I think. That's. (coughs) Probably nearly two years of practice right there, Silent Retreat. (laughs) Phenomenal. Uh, She's been with Inside LA since the very beginning, before Inside LA was Inside LA. uh, The sitting group used to meet in Best House, Um, so probably, what, 10, 11 years ago? Something like that. Maybe. Um, So thank you so much for coming and Mm -hmm. blessing Um, our Sangha, and uh, yeah, welcome.
0: Well, hello. Hi. Hi. <laughs> um, it's really, uh, you know, it's wonderful to be here. Um, Casey and Wendy Block are my dear dharma friends. And um, you know, it's quite, um, it's very uh, heartwarming actually to um, uh, be here with your sangha. And, uh, when I was deciding about what to talk about, I, I was remembering when I first met Casey and um, we talked about awakening and the different kind of ways that people hold um, the practice of uh, awakening. And, um, and I'm just back actually from IMS, from the three-month retreat, I was there teaching for two weeks uh, at, during the middle period. and. Um, You know, it's um, one way to think of awakening is that we become dharma centered rather than Mm self-centered. That as our practice uh, evolves, you know, we first hear the teachings and we have a kind of what's called bright faith. Like a light bulb goes off and we sort of aren't in the dark so much anymore. But then as we practice, we have to test those teachings and develop what's known as verified faith. And um, and that is a long period, because every little corner of our being has to really open to the dharma. All of our doubts and fears and resentments, they have to actually meet the dharma. And then eventually, what um, comes about is abiding faith, that we don't have those doubts anymore, that actually the dharma kind of permeates our whole being. So I thought maybe I'd start with a little story of something that happened to me a few years ago when I was um, at a training up uh, in the area of Spirit Rock. It wasn't at Spirit Rock itself, but it was a house nearby. and. Um, It was, you know, there were like, I don't know, over 20 people in the house. It was really crowded. We were staying there for a week. It was kind of very stuffy and uh, by the end of the day, and kind of uh, cluttered. (laughs) So a friend and I decided to go out and take a walk. And we were walking down a fire road, a dirt road. And if you've ever been to Spirit Rock, you know, area, it's like we you know open the doors and then you're just in this like expansive beautiful landscape with rolling golden hills and the sun was going down and the moon was coming up it was just like spectacular and as we walked along the road i saw in the grass these two little triangles kind of running around and i realized it was ears And I didn't know what it was, if it was a coyote or a fox, because the grass was so tall. But then, not that far away, like, you know, maybe across the street or something, there was a clearing, and a coyote came out of the grass and sat down in the middle of the clearing. And we were just kind of watching this coyote sat there. And then, like, it was really unbelievable. He started stretching his neck like just kind of reaching up and stretching his neck. And that went on for several minutes. Then it started making these guttural sounds. And then, honest to God, as the moon was coming up, <laughs> the full moon, he started howling at the moon. And, um, and you know, it, it was like, it just gives me goosebumps to think about it. And then in a big circle from every direction, the other coyotes started howling too. So, you know, he would help and there was like this huge response. And, um, yeah. and so, at, you know, when that happened, I thought, wow, this would be so great for a Dharma talk. But I couldn't, um, I couldn't really think about like what, so what's the teaching, you know? Um, I didn't really have a teaching to go with the story, but it was, I guess, on the back of my mind, because it was probably a year or two later I was reading one of my favorite poems and I remembered that um, the moon is a symbol for enlightenment and all beings want to awaken and be enlightened, even coyotes. But as human beings, we actually have that chance. We actually have this capacity for awakening. We can hear the dharma; it resonates with us. And then we can practice the dharma, and actually until the dharma becomes the center of our lives. And, you know, this is why in some traditions it's really emphasized the um, preciousness of a human birth. But I have to say, when I started practicing and I heard about the preciousness of a human birth, I thought... I don't know, this doesn't seem like so much fun. (laughs) This is really hard. Um, So, um, you know, it took me a while of actually reflecting on that. Um, Especially, you know, reflecting after the Dharma was more established in my life and I've actually experienced the rewards of practice. To realize, you know, what's meant by that preciousness of the human birth is that we get to hear the dharma and practice. That is what is precious about a human birth. And one of the things that, you know, is... um, We don't really realize, like, how rare and extraordinary that is. Also, when I was... um, at one time when I was sitting at Spirit Rock, I had read something right before I got there that the earth is spinning at a thousand miles an hour. And I was kind of just sitting there and remembering that and looking out and thinking how amazing it is that, like, we're moving so fast, but, like, the grass stands up. It doesn't, like, get knocked down. <laughs> the trees don't get fl- go flying off. Like, we're actually, I mean, a thousand miles an hour is really fast. And yet, the conditions are just right, that we're just upright, you know, and things can grow and flower and develop, all in this just amazing little bubble of atmosphere that stays, that protects us, like this membrane on the earth where we can actually um, live and hear the teachings and... um, Practice the Dharma, but I think the thing that most really touches me about the preciousness of the human birth and this capacity to practice is that the Dharma is really based in the principle of non harming. That doing no harm and being of benefit is actually what the Dharma is about. It's actually the training to be able to do that. And the fact that we resonate with that, that that actually calls to us, this um, desire to do no harm, that we hear that teaching and it's the light bulb that goes off and we resonate with that, is really quite extraordinary. So, you know, I was thinking about sympathetic resonance at one point. For some reason, and I kind of went, I looked it up on Google, and it said that the example they gave for sympathetic resonance was like a dog wagging its tail, like when, you know, a dog wags its tail, and then the other dog <coughs> wags its tail, it's like they're both start to feel happy, like we vibrate and resonate with each other, and, um, you know, it's also true with growling, though, too. You know, like when the dog growls and the other one growls, it's like they're resonating with, I'm not safe, you know. And um, so this fact that we actually resonate with the dharma, that we have like a vibrational connection with it, is because the dharma is already in us. We kind of, we recognize it. And that vibrational um, kind of resonance is um, awakened when we first hear the teachings, and that's what's known as bright faith. Um, there's a saying I really like by Ajahn Mun, who is a great Thai forest master. He said that um, that the Dharma is the language of the heart, so it fits the heart perfectly. If the heart, you know, fits the Dharma. The Dharma fits the heart. But he said it's because of words, you know, words can really get in the way because each of us, even though we have that deep resonance or Buddha nature or whatever you, however you kind of think of that, that we actually, when it comes to words, we have all have different languages, different histories, different backgrounds, and we may not actually understand each other. Uh, so, words can actually create confusion. And um, and I think faith is one of those words that really can like have a bad uh, connotation for a lot of people in our culture. And also, even if it's not a bad connotation, it could have a different connotation than what it means in the Buddhist tradition so faith in the buddhist tradition is not blind faith in some cultures faith actually does mean blind faith so if you know if you have that orientation towards faith it's it's actually a little bit different than the understanding in the dharma faith actually in the dharma has to be verified so we have to take that Um, journey from bright faith to verified faith and that means actually practicing and actually seeing for ourselves if um, the Dharma is true or not so hmm, let me just find this I just wanted to read you a quote from the Buddha do not believe anything just because I said it because a great elder has said it because you've read it in a sacred text put it into practice see for yourself what's true so this is um this is like a call actually to action really and to see for ourselves what's true and the Buddhist teachings are like an instruction manual to actually tell us how to find out for ourselves, to find out. And um, just to say that that poem that I read, I'm just going to read it to you, the one that reminded me that the moon was a symbol for enlightenment, it's by Hakuen, the um, Japanese poet. The monkey is reaching for the moon in the water, until death overtakes him, He'll never give up. If he let go the branch and disappear in the deep pool, the whole world would shine with dazzling pureness." So this is a kind of teaching, you know, a Zen poem about what the obstacle is to awakening, to disappearing in the deep pool. And the obstacle that clutching of the branch, that refusing to give up the grip, is what the Buddha called craving. And um, these are the words of the Buddha when he was enlightened. Thereupon he spoke these words of victory. Seeking but not finding the house builder, I hurried through many rounds of birth, painful as birth ever and again, O house builder, you have been seen, you shall not build the house again. Your rafters have been broken, your ridge pole is demolished. My mind has now attained the unformed nibbana and reached the end of every sort of craving." So the teachings, what they're pointing to is that to actually awaken and come to the end of suffering, We have to understand craving, the suffering it creates, and the release of letting go of that craving. And as we explore our practice, then we find out for ourselves whether that's true. The difference between a mind filled with greed, hatred, and delusion, and a mind filled with generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom. What is the difference? You know, and what is are, are the results, what's the fruit of cultivating a mind that's um, free, a mind that isn't really caught in these um, painful afflictions, these kinds of cravings. This was a theme on the three-month retreat. There were a lot of questions in the Q&A period about craving and the end of craving and what to do, you know, when you're caught in craving. And one of the things that um, Guy Armstrong said when someone asked him that at the retreat, he said, well, you have to hold on to something better. Mm. And that, I think, is a really good instruction, (laughs) is to hold on to something better. And that is, I think, for me anyway, the practice of the Eightfold Path just to hold on to those path factors, to start to know them, study them, you know, um, you know, that includes our ethical behavior, our commitment to not harming, to hold on to that when that craving is really kind of taking over and um, feels like uh, it's impossible to let go then just hold on to something better. I heard a story about BKS Iyengar um, that he was doing a headstand at the end. There's a place in India, I guess, that's like the Grand Canyon of India. It's one of the windiest places in the world. And he went there and he did a headstand, you know, next to the um, abyss, so to speak. And, you know, it was quite remarkable. And then someone afterwards (laughs) asked him, like, how did you do that? And he said, known unknown. And he always taught that what you don't know is limitless. So that abyss was the unknown, the limitless, you can't possibly know everything, but you know what you know, so focus on what you know. And that is like a dharma teaching, focus on the Eightfold Path, focus on non-harming, focus on generosity, kindness, truthfulness, and really explore the mind and how the mind um, that's caught that's you know in greed hatred and delusion distorts those um, distorts reality, creates a sense of separation and you know the illusion that we could do harm and have a happy result it's just not really possible so this is what we really want to um verify with our practice <laughs> you know I, I was just also kind of um, <coughs> reflecting about bright faith and that uh, um, how how it, Sometimes what resonates, at least what resonated for me in the dharma was like, not something I really understood. It was just something that rang true. Because Casey was asking me about when I started practicing, and I, I was remembering that. You know, when I grew up, it was, like, during the 50s, and I, there was one point where I lived in a housing development where everyone had, like, one of three kinds of houses, and, you know, we were all just, like, supposed to, like, be like that, like, you know, like, we had three choices, maybe, you know, and, um, and that was it, there was no, everything was really clear, like, you know, like, there, we didn't talk about death. We didn't talk about racism. We didn't talk about sexism. We didn't, you know, it was just kind of like, go with the program and you were guaranteed a happy outcome. And, um, and you know, it, it didn't really seem true at all. Like, how could that possibly be true? Um, it was very, like, simplistic, but it didn't really make sense. So when I first heard like the Dharma teachings, it was like, you know, like I didn't really understand them. They were actually in a way more complex, but I believed them. I could see something in truth. Like it was kind of like a bright faith thing. One of the stories I remember that was like that was I read it was about a seeker who wanted to be enlightened. So it was like a little Zen story. And the seeker was like walking down the road and bumped into somebody who was like a teacher in disguise, carrying this huge bundle, walking down the road. And the person with the bundle, the teacher, said to the seeker, you know, where are you going? And the seeker said, I'm going to get enlightened. And then the teacher takes the bundle and puts it down. And then the person was enlightened. (laughs) like <laughs> And I thought, wow, that I I believe that. I want to do that too. But I had no idea what like what putting a bundle down or anything like that meant, but I could feel the confidence in the storyteller that there was something that they were pointing to something yeah. that like I that they understood even though I didn't. And it kind of awakened in me this desire to find out Um, one of the things about that poem about craving and um, you know and the Buddhist teaching about the house builder one of the things about craving is that it creates a sense of me myself and mine it makes the world very self centered at that moment you know they talk about the sky being like a You know, the mind being like a big sky. But when we're craving, it's more like a tight little claustrophobic room where you can hardly breathe. And, um, you know, just to say that when I read that story about the seeker, of course it was a man. It was like he walked down the road and he met his teacher. And, you know, it was kind of like that. But somehow the dharma that resonated in my heart, like, actually saw through that. That there was something I could awaken to. Anyone could actually. So I just wanted to read you something. If I if I copied it, I hope I did. Let's see. Mm. So this is about a nun, and you know, on the Buddha's night of awakening, when he kind of broke that ridgepole, and the house was going to be built no more. Mora came to visit him. Well, this woman is about to awaken, and Maura comes to visit her. And just to say that these are very, like, culminating experiences, but we have these visitations every day, all the time, you know, where we're just kind of really caught, and Maura comes to visit, and we really listen. So this is what she says. The nun Soma had entered Blind Man's Grove near Savadi to practice meditation. Mara, the embodiment of delusion, sees her there and desires to make her waver and abandon her concentration. He addresses her with a verse, that which can be attained by seers, the place so hard to arrive at, awakening, women are not able to reach since they lack sufficient wisdom. And she replies, what difference does being a woman make when the mind is well composed, when knowledge is proceeding on, when one rightly sees into Dhamma. Indeed, for those who the question arises, am I a man or a woman, or am I even something at all? To them alone is Mara fit to talk. So that's another, like, kind of one of those stories that, you know, I really love. But what does that mean? (laughs) You know, like... (laughs) Really, I mean, it's kind of, um, am I a man, am I a woman, or am I even something at all? To them alone is more a fit to talk. So, what I really like about these things that are hard to understand but ring true is that it speaks to the kind of the vastness that like BKS Iangro was talking about being at the edge of the abyss, doing his headstand we can't understand there's so much we don't understand but we know the truth of non-harming we know that that's what's needed in our world and that we have to train our mind to actually let go of all of these reactive destructive self-centered delusions um in order to really uh be of benefit to ourselves and others so we don't really have to know. Awakening doesn't mean knowing everything, I think. It just means knowing that um, we can trust the Dharma, that we can look for the direction in our thoughts, our actions, in our speech, um, in the teachings. Of all the teachings I think lately that Have really taken hold for me. I mean, I I can, I think you know. There's a few that actually have the path factors that actually have been really helpful to me. One is looking at intention, intention behind our actions and our speech and our thoughts. Another is wise speech. You know really that's where we do most of our harm to really start to pay attention to wise speech whether what we're saying is truthful, helpful, necessary, at the right time. Um, you know, to really kind of start to have an impeccable attention to that. You no, know, I think part of the development of moving from bright faith to verified faith is a kind of accepting of the that there is no way out. You know, I know like in like when we start doing retreat practice, a good example of that is like you sit, you walk, you sit, you walk, you do everything, and then you go back to your room and you could just be yourself. you know and it's sort of like that I think all of us you know it's like having that one drawer in your house where it's like everything could be neat but like maybe it's a closet or a room but like and everything's a mess you know that we actually start to be more impeccable and take um and take the dharma into the areas of our lives that are unexamined or where we really lose it. or You know, it's hard practice, but it's very worthwhile. And speech is one of those areas, you know. Um, yeah. I, I had um, a lot of work to do in that department. And I think maybe the more work you do, the more benefit it is. Um, for me, like, uh, being... Um, in meetings was just like a form of torture, really. <laughs> you know, but part of it was my own agitation, my own assumptions about what you know, what people knew and didn't know, and like how they thought and how they were seeing me. And as I started to kind of develop a little more discipline and um, listening and looking at what was motivating my speech. I, the whole situation calmed down for me, and I actually was much more able to be relaxed in those kind of um, situations. So, that to me, it like verified the Dharma. But it's not that it was easy, it wasn't easy. It actually, sometimes we think like when things are hard or that our practice is really challenging, that that's a sign that it's going badly. But actually it's not because as we develop more confidence in the Dharma we actually start bringing it into the whole life and then there are areas of our life that are just really challenging to work with but we have the strength to work with it so even though it seems really like we've re our you know our practice is going badly it's actually really going well when we're able to do that so of all um is it really 11 o'clock oh my gosh okay well that went really fast <laughs> so let's just um let me see where i'd like to like pull this um well this is an opening so i'm just gonna have to wing it here so Of all the like path factors that I found really um, helpful and what I've been working with lately is wise effort. Because wise effort actually is about looking at the mind. We're so like conditioned to look at like outside and not at the mind itself. So, what wise effort is, is Preventing negative mind states from arising. Mm. You know the obvious one. You know example that's given is like, you know, if you have a drinking problem, don't go into a bar. But it's a it's a much more um, it's much more. Um, uh, Complex isn't the word. It's, it's, deep, it's, more, it's a more deeper practice than that. Because the best way to kind of keep negative emotional states from arising is to practice non-harming. So it's like just in the preventing negative emotional states from arising, we take in the whole dharma. We have to develop all the tools of practice to be able to do that, to do no harm. And then the second one is if there's negative mind states there to notice it and let go of them. <laughs> so if you're already really agitated, then we have to let go of that agitation and come back to a more balanced, compassionate, loving, wiser place. So that's a big job. You know, we could be, you know, we could, it would be good if we were doing that all day <laughs> long. Mm-hmm. And then we want to cultivate positive mind states and... Um, and, and continue them, you know, we want to sustain them. So those are the four wise endeavors. Abandoning negative, uh, preventing negative mind states from arising, abandoning the ones that have arisen, cultivating wholesome mind states, and sustaining them. And what makes something wholesome or skillful is that it leads to happiness. And what makes something unwholesome or unskillful is that it leads to suffering and unhappiness and distress. So we want to really start looking at that. Like, is it true that by, by that my mind state, my intention, what's going on in my heart leads to happiness or unhappiness? We want to verify that that whole way of framing reality is true. And so when we practice with these efforts, we're really moving towards the uh, practice of verified faith. And to say that those four things are very interactive. So every time we meet a negative mind state with mindfulness, we're cultivating wholesome mind states. Every time we meet it with kindness, we're cultivating wholesome mind state. So the Buddha talked about feeding and starving. So if there's a really negative mind state arising, that's like a great meal for mindfulness, and, you know, and <laughs> kindness. It's like the, it's really good time to practice because one they starve out each other. The Um, negative mind states are feeding on your wholesome mind states and the wholesome ones feed on the negative so that's where the choice of you know what to bring in. and you know I was talking about um, that um, the mind feeling like a little tight house you know so if you bring in mindfulness it's like you open the windows if you bring in kindness you open the door you know, if you remember your common humanity, the universality of suffering and the end of suffering, it's like you open, you take off the roof, it's like you have the view. So each time we, we meet what's going on in the mind and heart with mindfulness and kindness and the aspiration to do no harm, we're actually verifying our faith. We're starting to see that we actually can meet these experiences with the dharma. And um, I had i I'll just end with a story of a kind of, uh, that happened to me that really highlighted this thing about the heart and mind being like a room and it's what you bring into it. I taught, um, I teach at UCLA in a pediatric pain program and one of the studies, research studies I was involved with was young cancer survivors who suffered from persistent fatigue. So it was a yoga intervention, and there was a girl in the class who had lost her leg, and she had lost it really high up, like, um, so she was never going to get a prosthetic. It probably happened when she was around 17 and she was 19 maybe when she was in the study. And, and, then, and she was a great student, like she learned how to do headstands and handstands and back bends, mm-hmm. and she was very enthusiastic, and then she didn't come for two weeks. So that was very unusual because the way a research study is is set up is people know right from the beginning that we need the data. And if the practice is really helping them, they want to share that data. So they want to participate and come. So she didn't come for two weeks. I was like, I didn't know what happened. And then um, when she came the following week, I asked her, and she said that her grandmother had died. So I thought, oh, you know, that's, you know sad, you know, and then she said, and her grandmother was in the hospital where um, she had been for a year, I didn't know she'd been in the hospital for a year, so I thought, oh my god, that's so traumatic, to have to go back there, and then she said, and her room was in the room next to mine, Mm I thought, oh my god, like, just like you did, but then she said, it makes me cry every time I tell the story that, so they asked to move her grandmother into her room, because there was so much love in that room. Mm-hmm. yeah. So just to say that it's not the event. I mean, this is the teaching of the Four Noble Truths. There is suffering in this world. It's how we meet it that really determines our happiness or suffering. and um, And each time we meet it, we understand the practice, we deepen our conviction, we deepen our confidence, maybe a better word, it starts to create this momentum. The dharma has a momentum. And more and more and more, we choose the dharma when we're craving. We actually choose to cultivate the mind and heart and make a wise and a kind choice. And that is what leads to abiding faith, the faith that, um, yeah. So, I mm-hmm. think that's probably a long enough talk. I just wanted to, um, if I can find it, end with a quote by Dilgo Khensey Rinpoche. I don't know why this? Well, I guess I can't really end with that, but I can say that what he says is, uh, to paraphrase, is that when we, um, you know, have a when we take medicine. That reading the prescription doesn't really do anything. We actually have to take the medicine. And the Eightfold Path is actually what's known as the medicine in the Buddhist teachings. You know, suffering is the symptom. Craving is the cause. The, there can be an end to suffering is the prognosis. And the way or the medicine is the Eightfold Path so what he says is that you know you you have to take the medicine until the dharma permeates your whole being Mm. so yeah thank you for your attention you have just listened to a recording from Insight LA in Long Beach for more information please visit us at insightla.org